podcast in the galaxy. The Easy Easy Show. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Elise Easy Show. I am your host, Elise Easy, and today I am joined by Toby Muse. Hi, Toby. Hi, Elise. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So Toby Muse is a journalist and filmmaker. You are the author of the book Kilo, which details the journey of a kilogram of cocaine from the coca leaf to abroad, essentially America, Europe, etc. Get Indeed. that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this was my first book and it was published in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. No, the pandemic. So that is not a good time to publish a book. I will just warn people, if you're planning on publishing a book, <laughs> try not to publish it at the beginning of a pandemic. But anyway. That's quite a big book to publish then for your first time. Yeah, I mean, it was the result of years of me working and living in Colombia and being a foreign correspondent and covering mm. the the war on drugs, but also having developed friendships in that world, in the underworld of Colombian cocaine, that allowed me access. So it w really was taking in 15 years of work and kind of condensing it into one book. And part of the part of the the, the, the about writing that book was finding that structure. And as you mm. said, the structure we kind of ended on with my agent and the publishing house was to start from the bush of coca and then follow it every step of the way as it becomes cocaine. And more importantly, all of the hands of the people, that kilo of cocaine passes through. I thought that was a really interesting way of approaching it. And it kind of, I wanted to show people, I, just to sum up, I wanted people to understand this is what it feels like to be in the middle of the war, of the cocaine world. I didn't want to write a book about statistics, about pie charts, graphs. I want to say, this is what it feels like to really be around these people. And hopefully, hopefully I achieved that or I didn't. I leave that up to the readers to decide. <laughs> so let's go a bit a, a bit further back than that. Let's go earlier. Uh, journalism. Why did you choose journalism? I heard that you are also a fan of Hunter S. Thompson. I'm a big fan of Hunter S. Thompson. I think I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when I was a teenager. And I think I got the... Um, wrong message from the book because I read it and thought wow drugs sound great uh, I don't think that was quite the message he was trying to portray so would you consider yourself maybe a gonzo journalist because you were out there you were with the people from every step and you reported on it that way yeah I mean I, I'm a huge fan of Hunter S Thompson as well I mm -hmm. do find though that I find the classics of Hunter S Thompson are classics for a reason I think I think his writing style by people who don't appreciate him is unfairly ignored. I think he's one of the best wordsmiths of the 20th century. Mm. Hands down, I think he is that good. On top of being incredibly funny and putting himself into these incredible situations. When you have that cocktail, and I will say that I find when people try to emulate him, a little bit goes a very long way. You know, you've mm -hmm. really, it's Hunter S. Thompson, or kind of really ease up on the brakes because, you know, it's it's difficult. What he did was so unique. But I'm glad that kind of came through because what I found something that I didn't understand, and anyone who's thinking about writing a book might find this interesting, I found it really important to have these books next to me as I was reading, as I was writing the book, to kind of get me back into the, get me back into the the, the sense I wanted to convey. And Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was one of the books I was reading as I was writing my book. Another one was Dispatches. Have you ever had a chance to read that? No, not yet. 
Michael Hurst Dispatches is about the Vietnam War. It's incredible. In, some of the best war journalism, journalism ever written. And another one was by Thomas Wolfe uh, about the electric Kool-Aid acid test. So they're all new journalism. And that was what I wanted of the 70s. And that was what I wanted to convey. Hunter S. Thompson, yeah, was a, is, was a huge influence. Like you, I read him as a teenager. And I think that really did it was one of the books that really pushed me to think, I want to do this. Another one was what made me want to be a foreign correspondent was a book by the uh, independent foreign correspondent called Robert Fisk, who's dead now, who wrote a book about the Israeli invasion in 1982 of Lebanon called Pity the Nation. And it was so moving. It was so good. I thought, man, this is the, this is the job for me, you know, to sort mm. of take you know, to to go out and really live an active life. I thought that's what being a foreign correspondent could offer me. And I've got to say, it, it kind of, it, it worked out that way. You know, I wasn't wrong. So why did you choose to work on the cocaine cartels and Colombia specifically? So I, um, I left university and I knew I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I didn't really have any sort of connections in this world. And to me, the idea of being a foreign correspondent was almost like, I want to be a Hollywood superstar. I mean, I just don't know how to do this. I don't know how do you get a job in the Times or the Guardian. I just, I didn't come from that world. So I finished university and decided, okay, I, I don't know how to get into the newspapers. I don't really want to go work for a local newspaper for three or four years and then work my way up. I didn't really have any clippings. I thought, you know what? I just want to be a foreign correspondent. I'm going to move abroad. I moved to Argentina at first. And it just wasn't active enough. Uh, you know, it's a great country. It's a phenomenal country, phenomenal people, beautiful country, really high levels of culture. It's a really intellectual uh, population. They love their books. Um, Buenos Aires is one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. But I was a young man and it just wasn't enough. There wasn't a spark. There wasn't that kind of, hey, you know, Colombia, it was in the midst of a civil war. It was the kidnapped capital of the world. It had this raging cocaine industry, this, as I say, this civil war, this insurgency that had Marxist rebels fighting far right death squads with the government in the middle. It was just a foreign correspondent's dream. That's what you want when you want to be a foreign correspondent, because I think a lot of us who want to be foreign correspondents, there's always the idea of war in there. I think that we do see that. And I, I, I didn't want to be a war correspondent, but I did want to cover wars. I don't like the idea of those people who travel from war to war to war. That seems to me not a very, A, enjoyable life, but I also think what unites Angola, Colombia, Russia, Iraq, except for the fact they're at war. You know, I mean, I'm being unfair, but you know, there is no unity. So you arrive every time without really knowing anything about the country except there's a war going on. Mm. No, you need to understand the country. You need to understand its people. You need to understand its history. So, so yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to cover war and Colombia had, had many wars going on. And so, as I say, it was a great place if you wanted to be that life of adventure. Um, you know, another thing that I was obsessed by with, as a kid was Indiana Jones. You know, I love that film. And I think that idea of, you know, just a life of adventure um, and yeah, Colombia. Columbia gives you enough adventures. Trust me, you're like, oh, okay, I've had enough adventures for a while. Let's just ease up on the adventures here. Do you not worry about the risk then of going to these countries, especially if some uh, are war-torn as a journalist? Are you not worried? No, you do, you do get worried. I mean, there's a spectrum. And um, there's times when I've 
There's times when I've walked away from something. I also uh, covered the war in Syria, the war for Aleppo. I covered uh, the war in Mosul, Iraq. And there's times when I've said, yeah, I think up to here. You know, all right, guys, <laughs> up to here today. That's, I'm good, you know. That's my because limit. Because we also have to, you know, especially in Syria, you know, get back to Colombia. And it's interesting, the differences, I think. But Syria, you were with, you were, we were all with insurgents. And these men, and they were all men, had made a decision they were going to die for this revolution. Their life was worth sacrificing to overthrow their, the government they hated, this regime that had killed their friends, tortured their families, perhaps. They were ready to die. Well, okay, if you're with 10 guys who are ready to die, are you ready to die as well? So, you know, they're like, let's do it. You know, I mean, and I'm like, well, maybe not. You know, guys, um, maybe I don't want to die today for this. Um, so you... Uh, there are times in Colombia, it's interesting the difference in in Syria, you would have airstrikes, you would have airplanes coming over where you are dropping bombs and missiles or heavy artillery. Colombia is a different war. It's a dread that there's just this aura of violence in a crime in a, in a violent part of the country. Not all of it's like this. And remember, we're talking about a Colombia 20 years ago, which is a very different from Colombia today. But there's this constant sense of things could go wrong at any moment. And if they go wrong, they could go really badly wrong. You could be kidnapped. You could be mistaken for being a DEA agent, an undercover cop. So there are times when you do get kind of freaked out. But, um, you know, that's also part of the job, I think. You do, you've do. you got to have some sort of stomach for this. Yeah. You know, otherwise, why are you doing this job? You know, if everything's going to really freak you out, this isn't the job for you. It's like being a flight attendant who doesn't like turbulence. It's not going to work. You know, I mean, you don't like flying and you're a flight attendant. It's kind of part of the job, you know, just step aside and make way for someone who can do it. You know, I would say in that in that case. Yeah. As someone with a phobia of flying, flight attendant would be like my number one hell job. I'm I wouldn't be able I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I hate flying. I hate it. <laughs> part of the reason that I've invited you onto the show is because cocaine feels a bit personal to me. As my audience knows, or as most of them know, I've been teetotal sober for over four years. I previously had an issue with consuming cocaine. I used to live in London. I was an active user. And it sounds a bit daft. And it's very ironic because I've been vegan for like quite a long time. And I was a vegan that did cocaine. I did not know, I was very ignorant at the time to just how detrimental cocaine is to villages, communities, how for every kilo that gets to England, a bunch of people have to die on average for that journey to be made. Have you found from doing this book that the average cocaine user overseas, London, America, is ignorant to the process of cocaine because I certainly was until I started until I gave it up well I had to stop um and then I started researching it myself I was like oh god no I shouldn't have, shouldn't have been doing this I'm an ethical vegan like oh feel bad about it yes I mean it, it, it's a complex one it, it's um it, I mean to answer your first question do are most people aware of the process and the violence that surrounds cocaine absolutely not um but I do think it's important, and uh, you know, I, and I was actually just in a place uh, about a month ago where they were producing cocaine, and I was struck by how rustic it is. This process. I think anyone who's seen this program, um, Breaking Bad, well, now everyone's thinking these shiny German-designed installations underground. Everything's like you know, perfect temperature, uh, air conditioning. No, this was a place where it was like four wooden poles stuck in the jungle and a piece of black plastic, like a rubbish bin bag as a roof. The guy's throwing coca leaf 
on the ground. He's cutting it up with like a shredder. And then part of it, he throws uh, ammonia in uh, powdered form on it. Mm. And he starts like he's literally um, walking over it. That's how he mixed it up. And I was thinking, I wonder if people who are going to put this up their nose know how this is, how it's made, how he adds sulfuric acid, how they add gasoline in it. This is the first stage to take the leaf of coca to turn it into something called coca paste, which looks like it has become a substance that kind of looks like cocaine, but it's still one step away from actually becoming pure cocaine. So I think the process, I think a lot of people don't really know enough about. And I, I as you say, there is always this violence around it that I do think is part and parcel of the of the um, of the business. But I would say the reason why there is violence is because this is a black market. This is, and it took me years to really understand that violence is inherent in cocaine because you have two business partners and there's a dispute. They can't go to a court. They can't sue each other. They can't, one can't report the other to the police. So they have to resolve it themselves and they have to enforce their version of justice. And that is always, as they say in Colombia, by going to the men on the motorbike. And when they say the men on the motorbike, we're talking about sicarios, hired assassins. That's the way business disputes are solved within cocaine. So it is inherently violent. But again, I do think we need to look at the fact that it's inherently violent because it's a black market. And that's just something to think about. That is no, that I'm not suggesting legalization. I am not a pundit. We can get on to all of this later. And I think these are big topics. I am not a pundit. I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist. Mm. But I can say what we are doing is not working. What we are doing so far is not working. There needs to be some sort of change. Um, I, I, there is the de devastation to the environment. As you say, they do, um, they do, uh, uh, burn uh, what they call slash and burn parts of the rainforest but interestingly i'll give you an example as well uh, um there's been these big crop substitution plans in colombia recently over the past 20 years so what they do is they go to the small farmers who grow the coca bush and they say okay look you have two hectares of coca we're going to help you move to a legal um a legal a legal but you know a legal a legal business and so I knew of one who was uh, growing coca and he had, I think, two hectares of coca in the mountains, in the jungle. The government came and said, OK, you know what, we're going to uh, we're going to get you onto raising cattle. He said, OK, cool. Yeah, this is a great zone for cattle. He had two uh, he had two hectares of coca. The rule in Colombia is basically one hectare of grass for each head of cattle. He had 10 cows. So he slashed and burned another eight pieces of the rainforest in order to make room for his cows. Cattle can be even more destructive to the environment. But again, this isn't to minimize um, at the sludge that these guys produce when they're making the coca paste. They always produce it next to a river so they can throw it into the river. And it's disgusting. And you think you're doing this to your own country. And they say, well, yeah, what else are we going to do? All right, mm. but You don't need to do this to your own country. So there is an intense environmental cost and violence cost to the production of coca yes uh, cocaine and i do think people ought to know about it yeah i agree let's start from the beginning in your book it takes place there's an intro in 2016 it seems that colombia is about to turn this corner there's going to be peace the farc which is a far left guerrilla group yeah. is negotiating with the government and the violence and then seemingly the politicians dropped the ball what happened there 
So it's really sad. So you kind of have to have to run up to this peace process. Um, and a little bit of history, but I think it is kind of interesting. It, you know, if you think of if you think of Latin America in the 1980s, there are these insurgent movements across from basically, you know, Central America all the way through South America. You know, in fact, we have the stereotype of a Latin American rebel, right? You know, we've all got that image because mm. it was filled in Peru, in Colombia, you know, wherever you want. By the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union deals a blow to these leftist insurgencies across the country across the continent you know they kind of lost their north star and sometimes public backing or a financial backing from the soviet union with the exception of the farc with the exception of the rebels in colombia why because they had already decided to get into the cocaine business now this is where it varies about how much they were into it i'll say the FARC, which stands for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a kind of a communist movement, they say they only ever taxed sales within their region. They weren't mm -hmm. involved in the business themselves. And their opponents say, no, they were overseeing production. They were overseeing exporting the cocaine that they were involved up to the neck at every single level along the along the chain of cocaine. So the FARC starts making all of this money because they've got involved in the cocaine business. And by the time of the peace process comes, this country has suffered so much. 50 years of this civil war that pits the FARC against the government that has uh, allowed for all of this lawlessness uh, in Colombia. The FARC is controlling a considerable amount of territory where the coca is grown, the basis of the cocaine industry, this ugly bush that grows in the northern Andes of South America, the coca bush. So the FARC say, as part of this deal, we are going to lower their weapons. We are going to lower our weapons. We're going to destroy our weapons. We're going to hand over this territory to the government. But the government, that's our commitment, the FARC would say. But the government has to arrive to these zones and impose what it's never been able to do before in history, law and a minimum of order. Put a hospital there. Put a police force that isn't corrupt that will help the community. And it was a bet by the FARC. They said, when we lower our guns, our enemies are still out there. We need law and order to protect us. We're taking a bet on this peace process. And they handed over this territory. And like Colombia has never been able to do in its history, it couldn't get there in time. And so all of this coca was left open. So you had immediately all of the other illegal groups, and there's various different insurgencies in Colombia, all smaller than the FARC, but still, they rushed to fill the vacuum. And so that was this window of opportunity for Colombia. And unfortunately, the window has slammed shut. Now there are in, there are so many insurgent groups living off the cocaine trade. I couldn't name you all of them. You go to a single province, there could be four or five different groups. They have names that no one's ever heard of. Defenders of the border, defenders of the frontier, the heroes of Arauca. Uh, it just, uh, it just, it's incredible. And a lot of them are working directly for Mexican cartels. So it was that moment in time that the Colombian government could have done what it's supposed to do, just be there for its citizens. And they weren't up to the, they weren't up to the job. And so now we have a new cycle of violence that's going to be so much harder to eradicate. And by the way, Co Colombia is now producing more cocaine than ever before in history. People think Pablo Escobar was the high point. No, he couldn't have imagined the world we live in, the amount of cocaine Colombia is producing. Why is that? Why is there more cocaine than ever before? Is it just because 
basic ep- economic supply and demand like the rest of the world is just demanding more cocaine? What's what's going on there? So there's a couple of things what we think happened is part of the peace process and the FARC really, I've heard from farmers that when the peace process was occurring, what happened is, is that the FARC said to their friends, the small farmers, because the, the FARC was a revolutionary organization, but it really did come out of the small farmers. You know, they were, they were part of the community and they would tell their friends, hey, look, we've got this peace process coming. You've got one hectare of coca. coca. Why don't you plant two more? So when they come in and try and get the crop substitution, which was part of the peace process, by the way, there was supposed to be this crop substitution. If you've got three hectares of cocoa, the government has to give you that much more money, right? They're like, oh, yeah, okay. So you saw farmers planting a few more extra hectares just in order to get aid, in order to get rid of them when the government arrived to help them move off. Well, the fact is the government failed in that as well. The crop substitution program was a total catastrophe. There was one village I went to in my book. It's called uh, Resenio. And this town had proudly, proudly ripped out every single bush of coca because they were going to be the pilot program. They thought they were the future of the country. They, they said that the, the country looks to us. We're going to rise to the occasion. Rip out all of the coca. And it was the order. If you were caught with coca there, no, these, these villagers were not messing around. This was a matter of pride for them. And then they ripped out everything and the government just didn't come through. The payments that were supposed to come through, there was problems. There was probably corruption at some point that some of the money that should have gone to the farmers were stolen along the way. They were supposed to get money to, in, um, they were supposed to get a stipend that would help them survive, but also a big amount of money to help them set up a new business. So raising cattle, raising chickens, whatever, coffee. And a lot of that money never made it. And they were deeply, deeply distressed when I went there, like two years later. And they were resentful with the government. And they had this idea of we were fools. We shouldn't have listened to the government. And it was really sad. It was really sad to have seen this kind of pride in them. So that was one reason why. Another reason why we think there's a rising amount of uh, coca being grown is the entrance of Mexican mafia into Mm. Colombia. So now what we have is we have, as I mentioned, all of these new groups that are rising up with these weird names like Defenders of the Frontier, uh, the heroes of, you know, whatever, Antioquia. A lot of them are working very closely with the Mexican Mafia. Now, how closely? We don't know. Are the Mexican Mafia giving orders? Perhaps. But we certainly know Mexicans are on the ground organizing shipments straight from Colombia to, um, and what we understand is that they're asking the farmers in the zones that they're in to plant more coca and cocaine now there's so much of it it is reaching more destinations than ever before you can hear about places like saudi arabia afghanistan i was in afghanistan last year filming a documentary and they talked to me about how yeah sure you could get cocaine before the taliban these are zones that aren't known for their use of drugs we know about london new york But cocaine is business, it's capitalism, it's constantly looking for new markets. And when you think about Asia, a Mm. rising middle class, especially because cocaine is always connected with economic success. So when you have this booming new economies in places like Asia, with all of these new millionaires, well, how do you show that you're a millionaire if you're a 25 year old man? Maybe you've got three grams of cocaine in your pocket for the Friday night to show off. It's like, maybe that's your Mercedes. You're telling people I've made it. I can afford the champagne of narcotics. 
And we don't question these things. And I think that's really interesting about cocaine. Why do we call it that? Why do we associate cocaine with elegance, sophistication? No one can tell me why, but we do, don't we? You know, cocaine... It's uh yeah, it's a it's a weird one though, because like when I was actively using cocaine, I was broke most of the time. I was in my overdraft because I, you know, I'd always try and get that extra 50 to get an extra gram once I'd finished mine at the end of the night. You know, I was basically a little gremlin. That's the nicest term <laughs> I could use for myself. And I didn't look good. I looked bad. I always looked a bit like red and puffy and stuff because I was just partying nonstop. It wasn't classy or elegant at all because it seems like it on the outside. I remember being 21 and trying it for the first time and feeling a bit grown up and I would hang around with these people who were you know, double my age and I felt sophisticated because oh, I'm hanging out with them. We're doing drugs and stuff. And then a few years into it, um, it's just a degeneracy really <laughs> <laughs> no i think that is it and i think that's also something that fascinates me about cocaine is that we have on the one spectrum oh this is what supermodels in paris are doing after a show the height of glamour but then if you go to the other thing we have the term crackhead like literally mm. the lowest of the low right i mean just the person who's just sold or everything all of their dignity will do anything for the drug and so cocaine encompasses these two extremes. And I find that fascinating. There's, I find it fascinating that there's a glamour attached to the idea of cocaine that we voluntarily give. Mercedes, uh, any brand name would die if everybody just automatically associated it with glamour. But we don't do that because they have to spend billions of dollars to associate that. No one pays for advertising for cocaine. Mm. But we all just give it that. We're like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're sophisticated. You're glamorous. I just think that's an incredible thing of the culture. And I can't really understand what. I think there's an element that we've just had when people take it, especially at the beginning, as you say, there is an element of glamour in there. They just, even if they're deceiving themselves, and maybe it's the way it makes someone feel. I, I don't know. If anyway, I find it fascinating. Um, and I think there's a lot more to kind of look at consumption habits as well. You know, I, mm. I do think that's an under investigated part of this whole world. Yes, because I think I read an article once that the average person who consumes cocaine is really only doing it once a month, once every two months. You know, it's uh, you're in the top, I think, five percentile if you're doing it more than that. And for me, it was like a well, every time I went out and got drunk and I used to get drunk a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I do think that's kind of interesting. I did want to ask you a little bit about that, because I find I, I my experience of looking at the numbers and everything, it does seem to be the majority can take it or leave it. And what I see in personal experience with friends and just, again, reading the kind of data that most people seem to go through a habit of about six months. And there seems to be this minority that really get it bad in ways that the majority just don't. They can take it or leave it. And there's physical dependency, but also heart attacks. So obviously you had the misfortune to be in that minority, right? Yeah, so... I've done a lot of introspection in the four years that I've been sober because that's just what tends to happen, right? And for me, last year, I did get diagnosed as having ADHD, the more attention deficit side rather than the hyperactivity side. And that tends to get uh, be less diagnosed in girls than boys because when you think of ADHD, you do think of you know boys being naughty at school yeah. being hyper um you don't tend to think of the inability to focus or the object yeah. impermeance issues having all, all these issues that i have always had so i think so with adhd there seems to be an issue with your dopamine 
and your reward and motivation molecules in your head. So I think I've always had like an issue with eating too much sugar. I love sugar. Like you will have to pry it out of my cold dead hands. I'm never going to give up sugar. And as a kid, I would always seek sugar out. And I think that was almost subconsciously a self-medicating the ADHD because sugar and dopamine, it's all linked together. And I think when I became a teenager, it moved on to drugs because Mm. I had an issue with alcohol. I had an issue of weed. I, uh, I guess had a slight issue of MDMA and it's quite hard to have an issue of MDMA because you can only really take it once every like six months, really. But I would try and do it every weekend, just like silly behavior. I think my undiagnosed ADHD went hand in hand with cocaine and I tend to have this uh, addictive personality anyway. So Mm. it was just a, it was a recipe for disaster. And the people that I would hang out with when I was doing coke so much. They were all successful, but they would say to me that they were functional uh, alcoholics or functional narcotic users, Mm. you know? And yeah, it's like the group I was with, they would go hard on it every single week as well. And you're staying up and you're going to work, having no sleep, just a mess. It was, I think it was a perfect storm of Mm. catastrophe for my experience anyway. That's fascinating. I, I mean, yeah, as I say, I, I, I think there's so much more to be done in um, in the consumption side. I, I think these stories are really interesting. And especially I think there is, I think if we're going to tackle the problems of cocaine, we do have to really listen to people like you who have who have experienced it. Who, um, I think that's going to be part of the conversation. And we urgently do need to. I, I'm struck by the idea, and I think it's really interesting, your introspection about why you ended up using drugs because I'm constantly in the discourse about cocaine, about the war on drugs, I'm struck by how there's not even curiosity on the part of the UK government about why people do drugs. Mm. Why is London one of the cocaine centres in the planet and Amsterdam isn't? Mm. Why is Barcelona a cocaine centre and perhaps I'm making it up and perhaps Berlin isn't? I don't know Berlin's drug habits, but, you know, there are places. I remember going the first time I went to Amsterdam and all of these Dutch grow up surrounded by drugs and they're not interested in it. It's all English people making asses of themselves because they smoke too much weed and pass out. And it's Dutch people <laughs> stepping over the drunken English person who couldn't handle the weed that they put in them. Why are the Dutch like, no thanks? It's not even a religious thing. You know, that you can easily say, oh, God tells me not to. Well, that becomes easily explainable. The Dutch is like, no, I don't want to lose control that much. I think that's mm. part of it. Why in London? Why is there an English kind of thing about wanting to lose control and that gets into the binge drinking right because you want to get to a point where you're completely blasted there were conversations because now i live in america i'm half american half english but i think about if you (laughs) like a common thing you'll hear in london is like let's go get wankered let's get hammered if you said that in front of some Americans. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, they want to go out and have fun as well. They want to, you know, they'll be drinking their vodkas, they'll be drinking their tequilas. But that idea of let's all get blackout drunk, where does that come from? And, and that is tied into drug use. I think with getting into things about deep alienation, mm. I think a lack of a look for meaning in our lives. I think modern life is devoid of meaning for a lot of us. We, we um, I, I, And I think there's a search for adventure in many things. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I think there's a whole world to explore there that I, I, I hope someone really does. 
Oh, and there's also the issue with people who are addicts. Um, and again, my ADHD just goes hand in hand with this stuff. People who are addicts tend to find everyday life a little bit boring and maybe they can't deal with the fact because I, I listen to I think her name's Anna Lemke she's this neuroscientist who um, specializes in addiction um, I think I heard her discuss that yeah it, people who are addicts they just tend to find normal life and normal life is going to be a bit boring going to mm. the shops is a bit boring doing your taxes is a bit boring but some people can't deal with that so they're no. always trying to seek out this super normal experience and you know there are lots of addicts who um maybe they stop using drugs but then get into high adrenaline sports mm, yeah. i've noticed i mean i'm a bit too lazy personally to do that um I, I just do things like just play video games for 10 hours straight and that's not exactly normal either mm. um but yeah the thing about culturally england and our relationship with narcotics our relationship with alcohol that certain my environment certainly affected me as well because it is so normal to go out and just want to get absolutely shit-faced you know yeah. my my partner my boyfriend he's um he's european right he's french so he can have a drink and then that's it and mm. when we first started dating i was like what do you mean you can just have i've never had just one drink in my entire life what do yeah. you mean <laughs> it's fascinating how like yeah. culture comes into play with it because it, it is i mean the like growing up i grew up in the countryside in south england and there was definitely drug issues and alcohol issues there. But then moving to London, it was like that times 10. You know, mm. it was very interesting to experience and be wrapped up into that culture. Well, and another thing that I've been thought, thinking about as well is the popular depiction. I think there's a lot of, again, if we're going to wrestle with this problem, and I do think we need to because Colombia is paying the price. These mm. producing countries pay the price for our demand of these drugs. So there is a moral imperative that we kind of get a, a, a lock on this i do think there's a number of taboos that do kind of need to be in the, the depiction for instance i won't talk about heroin because i just have no experience of that industry and this is very own little world but the cocaine i do think we need to move on from these cliches of minute seven a young girl is uh you know 15 16 18 year old girl takes her first line of cocaine 10 minutes later in the story, she's on a street corner now selling her body. <laughs> That's not actually how most cocaine no, use goes. Not. And I think there's another thing that someone pointed out is the biggest taboo is about, you know, the use of drugs. How many people talk about, oh, I used drugs in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, well, you know, that's a cop out. You know, I mean, and I think that's kind of, I, I can't remember who said it, but they said, you know, everyone in the media was like, oh yeah, well, I used to use drugs. but it's kind of important if you're going to move the conversation forward that people be a bit more open about drug use. I mean, as far as I remember, I think it was drugs with uh, cocaine was found in Nampton Downing Street. Was it, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, in the toilets. Yeah, in the toilets. So now cocaine was just found in the White House, the by Joe Biden's White House. Joe Biden, I think a lot of people outside of America or younger people may not know this. He is Mr. Drug Warrior himself. This is the man who's fought every part of the war on drugs. So now in his White House, after 50 years of trying to destroy cocaine, the Americans paying tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, fighting cocaine, when you all add it up to prisons, the police force fighting, all of this, now cocaine was found in the White House. That tells you we've lost this war on drugs, right? Um, I mean, we've completely lost it. And I do think we need a more adult conversation. I think we need to hear from the people who really 
were badly affected by cocaine, but also maybe those people who just, you know, did it for six months. I've known a lot of people who just did it for six months, did it, you know, every couple of weekends mm. and just really just said, you know what, I've grown out of this. And a final thing, I mean, just uh, that really struck me, and I didn't know this, but drug investigators are now realizing that I think if I'm right in this, confirm it, please, but um, that there's limited amounts of time you have with each drug, which I had no idea. So I think what they think is, is that if you're going to start on MDMA, understand that you probably have about, I think it's about 200 or 100 in your life. And that's it. You're go it's not a renewable resource. And mm -hmm. I think the same might be true with cocaine. So I think people, there's just this limit you have of using cocaine when you get the pleasant effects. And you just get to a point where I'm just not feeling anything. I've heard from a lot of people that they just, I, I stopped feeling things. So I think that's, yeah. again, there's so much research to be done in drug use, but because it's been this drug war, because I think certain research, research centers were forbidden from investigating these illegal drugs. We're so far behind. I mean, certainly in America, I'm sure in England as well, we're realizing that MDMA can be used to treat uh, PTSD with veterans. Yeah. I mean, we could have been doing this 20 years ago, you know, but no, we had these old drug warriors who were like, no, 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 you, you are forbidden by law from giving MDMA to a, to a psyched out veteran who has nightmares every day, who doesn't want to live. It just, it's heartbreaking what the war on drugs has done to us, I think. The diminishing returns aspect of you know doing the drugs you only have a limited amount of time to enjoy it is interesting as well because when you said that i just had the memory of the very last time that i ever did cocaine because i knew i'd interestingly i'd quit drinking alcohol um and I was a few weeks into not drinking alcohol anymore. And I was like, well, I still need something. I need a vice. I know I'll just keep doing Coke. It's fine. And I was with my friends, I was, I was doing Coke and I wasn't really feeling much. And I'd done it sober, like sans mm. alcohol. That's when you know you have a problem if you can do Coke without alcohol. Because most people, it's alcohol, it lowers your, your inhibitions. Alcohol for me is the mm. true gateway drug because I never smoked weed and then thought about doing anything harder because I'd be too paranoid. Uh, but if you drink alcohol, and get drunk you're way more likely to say hmm. yes to cocaine you know um but i used to do coke without alcohol which that's a whole other can of worms right there and i remember i wasn't really feeling that much but i was just feeling like oh i need more of this and i was doing a line and as i was doing the line i was already thinking of doing the next one and the jig was kind of up for me i was like mm. i i can't actually do this anymore i just i physically can't i'm not getting anything from it um, it's difficult though because it's the one thing that I think of every single day every single day I think like I can really have a conversation with my friend and I'll be thinking to myself do you not make this a little bit better cocaine it's it's a crazy one it's the one that plays on my mind every single day it's and it's difficult. four years roughly I've been sober for over four years yeah the so last time years. I did yeah, the last time I did Coke was on, it was on an Easter Sunday as well. It was an Easter <laughs> Sunday. I was at home. I was at home. My mum was in like a different room. I don't know if she knew what was going on, but yeah, over four years. But that is, I mean, that's a great touching bottom story. Easter Sunday, your mum's <laughs> in the next room. It's like, what am I doing? And you're not even feeling anything except just burning up a hole in your nose. Yeah. yeah you know, it's just like, all right, time to move on. I, that's interesting. I mean, and consumption habits, I find, because um, in Colombia, what you'll find is, because it's so cheap, hmm. um, obviously, for obvious reasons, what you'll find is, is that um, people will just have a line to stabilize themselves, which I think is fascinating. They'll be like, 
man, that third whiskey has kind of hit me a bit hard and literally just one light. I just need to sober up a little bit. And you can, um, and so it's used as different because I remember when you were in university because it was 50 pounds then, you know, it was a kind of like getting everyone to chip in the money and everything. Cause you know, you're broke off students. The friends would do that, but there you can see, um, I've had taxi drivers in Bogota when I lived there on the night shift will, you know, kind of, sneakily snort a line of cocaine to keep them going mm-hmm. um you know they tend to drive very very fast at that point which is <laughs> obviously kind of not part of not a fun way to get home after you've been out partying all night in Colombia. um but yeah um I, yeah, as I, I i and i think there's so much there's so many untold stories of that world that i think are really interesting and again i would be fascinated to see a real interesting approach by governments like America, England, to start saying, why do people consume drugs? Let's start from the basics. No Nancy Reagan, just say no, kids. No, let's just start, why do people? Uh, And I do think what you said is spot on, this idea of some people who just can't handle the slow pace of normal life. And, you know, maybe they should have been in a life, a job with more excitement levels, mm. you know, and that's they that they look for outlets. They didn't have a chance or whatever, but they look for outlets because I do think even the terminology of drug use is a trip. It's kind of like each time a drug is consumed, it's kind of like a it's its own journey because mm. you don't you know, it's kind of you, because no one knows exactly how the drug's going to make them feel. They have an approximation. And especially when you start getting into psychedelics. You know, it, yeah. trip. I think that is it is a journey. I think for a lot of these people. And um, but anyway, yeah, I think it's a vastly untapped um, uh, area of research. Yeah, and the little naughty, the the druggy naughty part of my brain right now is thinking uh, because London or like well European and American cocaine is so cut with so much other rubbish. The cocaine in Colombia must be as pure as almost as pure as you can get it, and that must be a different quite a different experience than my like whatever i used to have you know i think like cocaine in colombia it must it must feel a little bit different because it's not cut with so much rubbish right yes so um 100 but again that's changing as well so what we had at some point is um i remember that i can't remember when this was but i remember the guardian run a story and they had um someone had released the results and it looked like a gram of cocaine was about 35 percent cocaine and then mixed up with, uh, I think speed was a common one of doing it, and then baby laxative or something, you know, just, so yeah, yeah, that's what you were looking at. But that was probably 10 or 12 years ago, I remember that article. Certainly at that point, Columbia, you were getting very, very high um, cocaine. Um, It it was easy to purchase very, very high percentage of cocaine. At the moment, though, something's happened. Now, a lot of that's being exported. So friends of mine who are big into partying in a city like Medellin, which is, uh, you know, has always been this kind of, this is where Pablo Escobar was, you know, it's this kind of, it's a big party town, but it also has this connection to the drug uh, underworld. And he said that um, all of the good stuff's being exported. Now. He said, it's just absolutely rubbish that you are, uh, that you are being offered on the streets of Medellin, that just no one who knows anything is taking the local drugs. And also that they're mixing this for fentanyl. Fentanyl is now being put into cocaine even there, which I think, I think could really end up shooting the industry in the foot. Because if you read about people are freaking out about this fentanyl, and I think in America, it's going to have an impact on cocaine use. If you cannot be sure that your dealer or his dealer 
hasn't spiked it with fentanyl. Most people, as we say, most people can take it or leave it. Yes, there is that minority who cannot take it or leave it. But a lot of people are like, I don't need this. You can't even tell me what I'm going to do. Screw you. I'm going to go off. I'll go do MDMA. I'll just drink whiskey. I don't need this. I don't need to, because fentanyl is for, quite rightly. There was a heartbreaking story. I think it was last year. It came out in the Wall Street Journal about how some dealer didn't know that his Coke had been spiked with fentanyl. So the person who sold it to him had probably spiked it. He sells it to about eight people. And, he, and because it became a criminal case, they have all of the text messages. He starts texting them saying, hey, Mary, just want to let you know. Hope you're having a good one. This one looks like it might be a bit stronger than normal. Take it easy. He knows something's wrong. And he starts texting everyone. They're all dead by then because he didn't know. They didn't know. No one warned them. They took a regular line thinking it's normal. Dead. And it's this heart. And he starts sending these texts. Mary, haven't heard from you. LOL. Hope it's a good night dead she's in her apartment by herself dead and it's just this heartbreaking but it also was interesting to show the spectrum of people who were using cocaine in new york city one was a primary school teacher one was like a corporate lawyer one was a wall street trader it was just everybody you know it was just kind of that was his um that was his range of clients but yeah um but anyway oh and, oh, and uh, finally uh, something i touch on in my book which i find really funny is that the drug traffickers who I ended up partying with a lot because I had these friends. By the time I was really partying with them, they weren't doing cocaine. They had moved on to something called 2CB. And it's really funny because like these guys who make their money <laughs> selling cocaine and they're like, no, 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 I don't do cocaine. All of these really tough guys, they end up doing 2CB and a lot of 2CB. And it's all via their girlfriends. Their girlfriends are the ones who start on 2CB and then they like, I oh, know you should try this. And then no, I'm not going to try that because it's pink as well. So I think they're like, oh, yeah, it's drug for girls and stuff. And then the guys say, oh, I'm not there. And then they're like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. And so they all into 2CB. So they, these big parties are like these mammoth 2CB sessions. Um, so that's a drug of choice in Medellin. I did 2CB once and never again because I had I I'm not I've not got the type of brain suitable for psychedelics or really anything because mm. I have issues with disassociating sometimes <laughs> and I had to leave this party and go home and I was freaking out. I wasn't seeing anything but it was just this it was awful. It was a horrible trip and it had ramifications on my mental health for like months afterwards because it just <laughs> it, it was kind of like seeing things from a new perspective for the first time. But I can't explain it any better than that. Like I, I was just lying in bed in horror at the, I thought to myself whilst I was on 2CB, it's weird that I've only ever seen vision through my eyes. And then that concept, which is very normal because we all just see things with our eyes. That's how eyes work. But that concept horrified me. It gave me this existential terror of, oh God. And I oh, it was 2CB, mm, no, horrible, <laughs> horrible. Well, I mean, just a, a little thing on that. I mean, I think that is, um, that kind of revelation it, it can be i mean i know you know this but it can be very typical of psychedelics i mean i've done that um the ayahuasca which is really uh, yeah here yeah exactly i've done it in colombia but just back onto what you said about the revelation about your eyes to really freak you out you know you don't need eyes to see because it's nerve endings so you could actually have 
as long as there was something else, you could be without eyes and you could absolutely see the world as it is. As long as the information, it blows your mind, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> if you think about it. I oh, if we were. Just it out and I was like, oh my God, yeah. So you just, as long as the information can come in via these nerve endings at the back of your, in another way, you would be able to see without eyes. Anyway, I just thought I'd freak out your. your, your oh, your, no. If. If I was on drugs right now, I would hate you for that information. <laughs> yeah. But going back to going back to your book, you start this journey in a uh, catatumbo where you see how the coca leaves are picked and turned into coca paste. So, what's life like for the farmers and the workers there? So Catatumbo is um, it's very typical of the cocaine industry. It's absolutely abandoned. Uh, there's, you know, uh, uh, there's no infrastructure. And I think infrastructure is th is the word. But what that really means is there's no roads. There's, you know, there's no bridges. So if you're asking these small farmers, oh, yeah, go off and go off and plant uh, a ton of pineapples. Cool. How am I going to get these ton of pineapples to the town to sell them? This is why people produce cocaine, because I can take that hectare of coca and i'll bring it down to something you know the size of this put it in a backpack get on the back of a motorbike go into town and sell that that's why it's important the lack of infrastructure so katadumbo is actually an indigenous term it's called the land of lightning because there was more lightning strikes in katadumbo than any other part of the planet so every night i was staying there the thunderstorm would roll in uh, around nine you would hear it in the distance and it would just come until midnight it was on top of you and it felt like the end of the world every single night I was sleeping there great people honest people they're trying their best but again there was no um there was no school there's no hospital everything is just kind of they're left to themselves and this is why they grow coca I mean and to show how abandoned they are by the time I was there they had just opened to big fanfare this tiny little village I mean, hamlets even, it was like three or four houses together. And then neighbors would come in for a chat to have a cup of coffee and just chat. And it turns out the neighbor lives five hours away. <laughs> I mean, that's life there. You know, he comes mm -hmm. in on this horse and it's uh, the only transport is horse or motorbike because there is no road. They had this school. So kids would walk two hours um, to get to school. And I said, oh, OK, cool, this school. And the woman who was guiding me around, she said, yeah, we had to raise money for it. And they had to raise money by installing their own toll along this dirt track. And it, after three years, they finally raised, I can't remember, it was like nine, $8,000 to build the school. And the school is like a two-room hut, right? Concrete, but still. And yeah, it took them two or three years to raise the money. But where's the government? You know, the government's supposed yeah. to do that. The government's supposed to be providing a minimum of healthcare and education and security. And the Colombian government just doesn't do that. Colombia is too lawless. The central government has always been too weak in Bogota. The terrain of Colombia is ridiculously complex. You know, we come from these very flat lands of England. Certainly, you know, there's just nothing that can wrap your head around what it is to have the jungle. I'll give you an example. When, Colombia is just an incredibly beautiful country, but there's a tourist, a, a small tourist zone, but the Amazon and the town, the city's called Leticia. You can only, it's on the, it's on the border of Colombia and Brazil and Peru. And what happens is you get on a plane in Bogota, the capital, you go up for 10 minutes or so, you're looking out and you can see cattle, uh, you know, farmland. And then for the next hour and a half, it's just jungle canopy. You don't see villages. You don't see a single field. It's just jungle. No, it's like a sea. 
That's how complicated Colombia is in terms of terrain. So I am sympathetic about why it can't impose its control, but that's the problem. So this is where the coca starts in misery. And these people are not criminals. They just don't have any other alternatives and they don't make a lot of money on it, but they make more from this than any other crop. Yeah, because what struck me when I was reading that section was that um, all the coca pickers now are Venezuelan immigrants. And some of them had jobs like a school teacher or a banker back in Venezuela. But obviously, because of what's going on in Venezuela, they, they had to leave. So it really feels like these people, these farmers and these pickers, there's just no other options for them. No. No. Yeah, I mean, Colombia has this, I mean, almost unique experience of just this mass entrance of Venezuelans who just literally walked out of the country. And that's what they, they and we where we were, we were 15 minutes walk from the Venezuelan border. And they've entirely replaced um, kind of uh, a lot of very menial jobs because they've come in and they've just undercut local, um, local Colombians. So being a raspachin, which is what a coca picker is, they're called raspachinas. Uh, being a raspachin, if you grow up in a coca area, that's just a rite of passage. For when you're 14, you start collecting coca. Um, and now these Venezuelans have come in and said, you know, we'll just do it for cheaper. That was also another thing because part of this culture is um, the uh, the brothel. You know, mm. it, so all of these coca farmers, when they sell their paste of coca, they all go to the brothel to sort of spend some of their money. All of the prostitutes now have been, you know, or 80%. I mean, it's a real, it's this incredible, complete replacement by these Venezuelans who, uh, yeah, have just walked out of absolute economic misery. What has done happened to Venezuela over the past 15 years or so is just astonishing. Uh, unique in modern history, I would say, how that economy has just nosedived into the ground. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, as you say, these people just don't have any choice. And, you know, picking coca, they used to be a bank teller and now they're picking coca. Yeah, and... What also strikes me about it is just how little the farmers and the pickers make. And I guess maybe it's naively idealistic of me, but I don't really understand that because the same kilogram of cocaine after it's turned from paste to cocaine is sold for insane profit. So why are the farmers and the pickers, like some of those people are on like a couple of dollars a day pay? Yeah, I mean, being a picker, again, I was just with them recently, I was filming um, in another coca zone about a week, uh, a month ago. And I, I mean, they, they can make better than other normal farm laborers. You know, if you are going to, if you're going to be a day laborer, it's better to be working in a coca farm than perhaps in the pineapple place. You do earn a bit more money. I think they were telling me, I'm trying to remember how much he said he could earn. I think the last one about a month ago, he said he could earn 150,000 pesos which would be around $30, which isn't bad in the Colombian countryside. So I think it is a bit, but you're right. The major profits all come later. All of these people are being squeezed. The, um, the coca pickers, the farmers themselves who turn the coca pay, uh, leaves into coca paste because you know this is, a, this is an industry run by criminals. It preys on the weak. So you know the men above them have the guns and they're like, look, this is the price. And that's really been a consolidation of the cocaine industry in recent years. When I first started covering this industry, these farmers could, in the coca town, had usually a few options about who they would sell to. So they created a little bit of competition. It wasn't going to be a big range, but they could say, oh, why don't you buy it from me? He's offering me this. Now, 
usually it's one armed group controls the town and they set the price mm. and you know the the farmers are bitching about these prices they say you know we need to earn more money um but the armed group is like no that's the price and i think that could be also something interesting because when you speak to coca farmers now they're all sick of this business they want out they're, they're waiting for a good plan from the government they will leave this business behind and that wasn't the case 20 years ago you know, some of them were embracing this. Hey, yeah, I'm an outlaw. Yeah, you know, I'm growing coca. And they were making good, good money. Those parties in the coca towns, they would come in, they would buy a bottle of whiskey. They would be with three prostitutes over a weekend. They would still have some money in their pocket to go home to. Now, you know, they come in and it's a few beers, you know, and 15 minutes with the Venezuelan prostitute. It, that's what life is like now. It's not what it was, you know because the money's not there anymore and you can feel it and you can feel that they're just they're not they don't want to do this job anymore but again they don't feel they've got any options then there's new government in in power in colombia we should kind of add this to the conversation and his inauguration he said he wants to end the war on drugs his name is gustavo petro it's really the first left-wing government in colombia's history so there's a lot of expectation anticipation in the expectation in the countryside about what is this president going to do is he going to come through with a real plan to help them get off coca is there any optimism the optimism is declining by the days mm. yeah um he he was taken he uh sworn in um it's august i believe it's august so he's coming up for a year in power there's still hope but, you know, there's been some kind of miscommunication. It hasn't been as fluid as people hoped. And the countryside is not going through a good time. You know, there's a lot of violence again, which all of this was supposed to have ended in 2016. That was the heartbreak. You know, I remember being with people in 2017 and they were really, really hopeful because there had been the ceasefire. The guerrillas had lowered their weapons. But now there's a lot of there's a lot of fear in the countryside again. Uh, and you feel it. So I think there's still this idea we're giving him a bit more time, but at some point, the patience is going to run out. Mm. And he knows that, this, by the way. They're smart people. Yeah. In the government. They know their window is closing on. Yeah. You then enter a town called Lagabara, where the coca paste is sold. So what's the experience like there? What's it like to be there? So, I mean, I think this is an interesting thing as well, because I, I can't really, I can't, tell you why I think this but I feel like a number of people have read my book and then tried to go to the places I went to I would really really tell everybody it's a really bad idea it's yeah. I mean I was going into places after years of living in Colombia and because I lived in the country I was able to size people up very quickly about are these serious are they heavy what what, what are we doing here I understood it if you are coming out of London, you do not know what you are dealing with. So there has been a number of people. There was a Canadian dude who got killed outside of, on his way to Catatumbo. There was a, uh, another Canadian dude, uh, that was a few years ago, who was kidnapped for a month as he was wandering around Catatumbo. And I don't know why. And I think they, because I didn't talk about how difficult it was, Maybe they thought, oh, well, you know, okay, cool. I, you know, I'll just rock up there and just say, hey, guys, you know, it doesn't work that way. I promise <laughs> you. I, you know, I had to spend days and days organizing a trip to La Gavara, someone who could go in there and vouch for me, who could, mm. you know, speak to the illegal armed groups in that town and say, look, I've got this foreigner coming in. 
We're going to behave ourselves. He's doing a book. He's showing the problems. Look him up online. Oh, he's got all of this work. Because if you rock up and you don't look like you're there, they're going to, they may think you're an undercover cop. And that's going to end badly for you. It's very, very, very badly. Possibly about as badly as these things can end. So like Awara took a lot of negotiating and a lot of patience. And then finally we were able to go there and it's a town, you know, controlled by these illegal armed groups. You don't see them, but they're, they're watching and you know that they're watching you and innocent conversations. There's actually subtext to those conversations. You know, people are speaking in code all around you. And yeah, we watched the coca farmers really enjoy their money. But again, it's, it's, it's a depressed scene now in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago. They can afford a few beers. Yeah, so we were there, but it also has an electricity because everyone's coming in to spend some money. So yeah, the money's not there like it used to be, but it's still like, hey, I've got money in my pocket and we're gonna turn it into a party weekend. So the cocoa pickers all come in on max. Like it's a kind of a town by the river. So these boats would just rock up with like 30 young men just jumping out, like all kind of combed hair, new shirt. And the famous coca pickers are famous for just burning through every single penny they have. Like they literally burn through it in the weekend and kind of stumble onto the boat on Sunday evening, go back to the coca farm and pick some more coca, earn some more money. But they spend it on women, they spend it on booze. And that's what they are. They're kind of they're kind of energetic young men. That's what they do, you know, and people just say, oh, look at them having their fun. So, yeah, it's it's it was a fun experience. Um I mean, you know, there were a lot of kind of side glances about who you are and a lot of drunken people coming up. You know, um, some guy came up to me, his T-shirt was stained with blood and he said, my name's Machete or something. I, I just, you know, because he had got into a machete fight. Another guy was telling me about how he was going to join the FARC. Uh, he was going to join the rebels. And it, 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 was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, but it, it's a very, it's a once in a lifetime experience. It's kind of like, I try to explain to Americans, it's kind of like the gold rush, right? where there's just this electricity in the air and there's just anything's for sale. People are there to make money. Um, and, you know, you feel it. You, you feel it. It's um, it's an experience. Um, but again, please don't go to Lake Avara. Please, please don't go to Lake Avara. Or if you do, I'm just not responsible. Go for it. Do it. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I told you not to. Just remember that. Yeah. So how do people react to you knowing that you're a journalist and you're there? Because it seems like quite a few people open up to you over the course of the book. How how do you get people to trust you in that way? Um, the, the, the most important thing is you have to shout from the rooftops you're a journalist. When you come into a red zone, they call them red zones in Colombia. We all know what that means, but that's the terminology, right? A red zone. Because you don't want any misunderstanding. I don't want people thinking I'm a member of MI6, CIA, DEA, undercover cop. So I am a journalist. And um, this is why we really freak out when people in the security services uh, pretend to be journalists, use journalism as a cover. It's a, the most unethical thing you can do because we go in there unarmed. We don't have a we, we don't have people. I don't have security with me. I go in there completely unarmed saying I'm a journalist. So I really, really hate it when spies pretend to be journalists because you put me in danger. Because I actually go in there without a gun. I don't have a gun tucked in somewhere like these spies do or something. You know, I know I do it really. So to pretend to be a journalist puts us in danger and it's the really shitty thing for them to do. Hmm. You know, some people just won't speak to you, but a lot of people in these abandoned zones have a story to tell. They're like, you know, cool, someone's listening to us because their feeling is that they've been completely marginalized and ignored by Colombian society uh, their whole life. 
So, um, so you know, you kind of, again, some people just won't. And some people have crazy tales. You know, I interviewed this, um, this Venezuelan prostitute and, you know, it was a wild tale. You know, she was believed in, she thought the apocalypse was coming. Uh, she thought the end of the world. She was terrified of living in, um, in, um, in La Cabara. She wasn't used to this level of violence that Colombia has this kind of constant level and history of violence. And she made these really insightful comments. Um, she said, I, I never understood about Colombia. Every, 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 every town has had its own massacre. I thought, wow, what a way of understanding the country. And this, by the way, is why, yeah, I mean, you can't, this is why people who make up quotes as journalists, I don't understand, why would you make up quotes? You can never make up anything as good as that woman's describing Colombia that way. Just let people talk. And I really wanted to get that in this book because the way Colombians talk is so special. They're so they're so poetic in the way they speak. And it's just a pleasure. And I wanted to put that down on paper. Um, but how they open up to me, it's just, you know, you're persistent and you just say, look, I'll give you all of the security guarantees you need. I won't get you in trouble. Um, and you make sure you stick to that. And I always tell people in Colombia, I've been doing it for over 15 years and I've never burned anybody. No one's come away saying, I wish I hadn't spoken to that guy. If you tell me you need to use another name, you'll use another name. And sometimes I'll tell you in the middle of an interview, I'll say, look, you're saying some heavy stuff here. Do you want me to use a different name? Because it, and, and then they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, maybe. And we keep talking. So yeah, that's the way. The Sicarios interest me because it sounds like for a lot of young men in Colombia, maybe all they've ever known is a life of violence. So cocaine would, well, let's put it this way. I have led a decent life in England, you know, it's very much first world problems that I ended up in this world of cocaine myself a few years ago. Even when I was broke and miserable in London, it wasn't poverty levels. It was just, oh, I've got 50 quid in my bank account because my job is minimum wage. It wasn't anything near as bad as the poverty levels in other country or for other citizens, you know. And me living, quite frankly, a cushy life compared to the rest of the world's standards, I had a difficult job staying away from cocaine. I couldn't. The allure was too much. So for these Sicarios where all they've grown up in is violence and if you're born poor over there, you're probably going to die poor, it must be nearly impossible to go down any other route for them. I think in certain places, yes. I think if you really are growing up in a in a, a violent slum, I think there has to be a number of factors there. Though I think if it's a, if if the culture of violence is already there installed, and there are slums where there's a heavy gang culture and there have been gangs for generations, I think your law is really difficult to get away from. Yeah, but I would caution. I but I, I don't think the poverty alone explains it all because I'll give you the example. Bolivia is much poorer than Colombia. And they don't have anywhere close to the levels of violence as mm -hmm. Colombia do. Colombia has a culture of violence that is at all social levels, especially from the elites. This has been a country that traditionally, when the when those at the bottom have kind of made demands, have often been replied to by the elites with absolute state violence, whether it be the army killing people, whether it be the famous banana workers massacre. This was, you know, they think hundreds of people were killed in like the 1920s when these banana workers uh, were striking for better conditions. So there is a culture of violence in Colombia. And I think that is very, very difficult. If you're born into the wrong slum of a place like Cali, 
Medellin. I think the allure is heavy. But some people, interestingly, I've spoke to friends. All of those people came via friends of mine. And I've mm. spoke to friends. I've been like, look, you grew up in a slum. Could you have been a sicario? I said, no, don't have it in me. And it's interesting. I think, you know, that if you're in a really violent part, I do think at some point when you're 13 or 14, you kind of ask yourself that question. And, and, and I think the answer does split because then, I mean, you, you know, you've got to be somehow broken and damaged in order to be able to kill people who have done you no wrong like mm. that, you know, because someone ordered it, you know, I mean, some, you don't get the, you know, I think we like the idea of the ethical hitman. Oh no, I don't kill children. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You know? yeah. you know, you, you, this is the job. If it's a yeah. nun, the job is the job. You don't say, boss, I'm not taking that one. No, you know, no. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, you go one. It's fine. I'll find someone else. It's like, all right, we've got, uh, you know, they're going to phone up someone else because now there's two jobs because now you're going to get killed because you don't leave that job like, oh, mm. I'm going to retire. That's what they all find out. And that's a, also, I would say something that really emerged as a theme, I thought, in the book as I was writing it, how cocaine is such an alluring thing and it, drags in everybody and then at some point everybody has regrets everyone's like shit i wish i hadn't done this the sicario i interviewed was you know he can't leave he wasn't gonna be able to leave and something happens that changes his life that changes things but you can't just retire from that because you know too much yeah you know you've been you've been carrying out hits for your um and there's an even a term in colombia that we don't even have the intellectual author of a crime because uh, uh, hiring an assassin is so common the idea is okay this is the person who hired you is equally guilty you know i mean it's a terminology that again contract killing is so common that um, they've invented this term and yeah you, you know this drug boss isn't going to let you walk around and go raise chickens knowing that you could put him in jail any moment it's just not going to happen mm, you mentioned in your book that well there's a drug lord called loco and he tries to tell the colombian police slash state that there's a bigger and badder drug lord in the gulf clan cartel called otoniel uh who enjoys and you say in the book enjoys underage girls do you not worry when you're reporting on these issues that that might make you a target of these powerful people? Because I think this um Antonio guy you say that he's he's still at large but he just has to move like from donkey to hut to hut every night to try to escape the um, narco militias. So if there is going to be a reprint, that will be updated. Otoniel has actually been captured now. It was this huge okay, operation. <laughs> yeah, Otoniel was a kind of, um, because Colombia becomes a theater of violence at some point, you've always got to, in, the, in a landscape of violence, you kind of, in order to stand out and show you are not to be messed with, and when you give an order, everybody jumps, you kind of have to show even more violence than the guy next to you. So Loco Barrera was captured. He was extradited to the US. And he was saying that this guy, Othoniel, is an animal. And they were acting like animals. They had come out of the far-right paramilitary movement that became famous for these massacres, where sometimes they would kill villagers with rocks, just machetes. It was gang-raping women. The, 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 the torture and the misery and the pain wasn't wasn't a glitch it was part it was the reason to do it because again you need to stand out just to go in and kill people with a gun 
Oh, mm. now you're killing people with chainsaws? Okay. That there's a theater of violence ever escalating, and I think is important to understand. So he was saying Otoniel. Otoniel ran the Gulf clan. Um, and yes, it was this really nasty thing about that they the top level commanders um had this fetish for underage girls. And it actually en ended up leading to the death of Otoniel's brother, who used to be the former head of the Gulf clan, because one of his underage victims ended up becoming an informant. And she leads the uh, the police to a New Year's Eve party where they kill him. There was another one called Gavilan, uh, another high-ranking trafficker who had a number of uh, STDs and was giving mm. these underage girls uh, these STDs. I mean, it's, th it's that nasty. And this is the grimness. It was this grim, poor corner of the country called um, Uraba, the very jungle. But also it's heartbreaking when you hear these things. It wasn't just Otoniel walking around and saying, I want that 12-year-old girl. It was families bringing dead girls to him. Yeah. And it's, you know, not all of them, you know, because again, there's like, but, you know, there are people who are very poor, who have all of the dignity in the world. We know that. And it's really important to kind of remember and keep repeating that. But there are some people, yeah, they're just... So um, in terms of how worried I am, I mean, it, it, it was widely reported. It, you know, this is far from being an exclusive. Mm. But it did strike me as like, you know, it's one thing writing it in English. It's another thing to write it in Spanish. where These guys could pick it up and, um, you know, yeah, you, you do think about these things. You do think about these things. But, you know, you've commit, you're committed to the project. And, and just got to mm. take it. Um, and I, I, I stayed away from Medellin for about six six months a year after the publication of the book um just to kind of let things cool down you know just in case anyone was ruffled um but yeah no, I, I, uh, thankfully i've had no blowback so there's a very popular tv show called narcos which i've been watching recently like that's why all of this stuff is my hyperfixation at the moment how much of popular culture surrounding the cartels is authentic to the real life events because I don't know about you or my audience, but when watching Narcos, I think, sure, they show Pablo Escobar doing horrific things or having horrific things done in his name in one moment. And then the next moment they show him being like this loving, caring family man. And even though I'm aware that it's just it's just media trying to be media, so it's more palatable for people to watch. Um, you can't help but find him humanized, even though he's just done these horrific things. But oh, look, he's there and he misses his family, and oh, it's so humanizing. Um, it's an interesting angle for TV shows to go. I think. How how much do you think is authentic? Uh, no, I think the stuff. I mean, my queries about Narco is I understand. I think Narcos is very very good, and people ask me for how accurate it is. It's very 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 accurate when it deals with the Colombian side of that. That's basically what was happening they you know they get the large themes right i think it's it's a it's a much better series than it has any business being it really is very very good i think for understandable reasons they have to make the americans sort of much more important in this than perhaps they were because you know they're, they're, they're selling it to a worldwide audience so it has to be half spanish half um half half in english because you know it, we know that american and english audiences just don't on the whole watch things that are completely subtitled it's their loss but they just won't so i get why they do that um but yeah i think it's a very good series i enjoyed it a lot in terms of pablo escobar i i think i yeah i mean i i there are these arguments about whether it glorifies them or not i think um 
I, I think that's kind of what he was like, though. You know, he really did mm. love his family and he really did. Um, it, it really was, you know, uh, dedicated to his children. Uh, he really was heartbroken when his daughter, you know, lost hearing in one of her ears because of the, I think it was the Monaco car bombing. Um, you know, he really did try and provide for his family. And that would be in keeping with someone from that part of Colombia, a paisa, they're called uh, the people from the region of Antioquia, um, which is the province around the city of Medellin. Um, you know, it's very family orientated. You know, there's also a lot of kind of, I would say kind of a lot of hypocrisy, i.e. kind of really dedicating themselves to the church and professing to be devout believers, but at the same time committing atrocities. Uh, I mean, they have their own ways of squaring that, but it's, it is hypocrisy in the end. I think I think the depictions are good. I think they're spot on. Um, I think what I would say about these guys is, though, after having looked at them for years, I, I don't think it goes back to the it goes back to the black market. I don't think El Chapo, Pablo Escobar or Al Capone were particularly great men. I think what it is, is that they were operating in a black market and they were ruthless. They were merciless. They were violent. They were prepared to do what other people may not be prepared to do. And working in the black market, those were all advantages. But I don't know. I do want to kind of I my I do want to step away from the idea that these are all Professor Moriarty's, just criminal geniuses. I just don't know if that's mm. the case. I think if there wasn't a black market, I think Al Capone standing around on a street corner, if there wasn't prohibition, I think Al Capone standing around on a street corner being a pimp and, you know, attacking prostitutes because they didn't make enough money for him that night. It's the black market that takes these these thugs and lets them become billionaires we're we're doing this our policies right now are creating turning monsters into multi-millionaires and i think it's always important to kind of remember that uh but yeah back to narcos i love it yeah because that's weird the almost romanticization in a way of oh they were criminal geniuses criminal masterminds because i feel this is very off topic this is very tangential i feel that same way towards ted bundy because we're told mm -hmm. ted bundy oh he was handsome and charming charismatic and he was intelligent and then you watch his interviews it's like no, he was literally just a bloke and i feel like it's almost a, a form of like propaganda to tell mm -hmm. us no he was so smart and that's why he evaded the police he was just really smart no, the police were pretty inept and weren't taking it as seriously. Same with Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, the police got reports of what Jeffrey Dahmer was allegedly up to that we know is actually true. And they were ignoring it because, well, I think there was the homophobic AIDS crisis of the 80s. Mm. So they didn't really want to be dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's just interesting because in a way that is glorifying these people oh yeah. bundy got away with it because he was smart or pablo escobar was a criminal mastermind when no i think it's closer to what you were just saying then yeah i mean i i do think part of this is the need for a kind of i think that the dramatic needs of the story to turn to for this to become a tv um program i mean you know i i always think that really again if you really again i wouldn't I think, and it goes back to like Hannibal Lecter as well, exactly in that mold that you're saying, yeah, that we're talking about fictionalized version, but you know, we all came with this idea of the serial killer who has perfect taste in food, classical music in the background, loves the opera. I think, you know, the, the reality, every time you look into this, 
and it's an interesting fictional creation yeah but every time you look into it it's much closer to i don't know if you've ever seen the film henry portrait of a serial killer it's this no. really grim brutal film but you think this is actually what it's like this isn't opera in the background this is grim just really depressing and just just grim man it's just they're preying on the absolute people that you know they're smart and they're cunning i don't think there's i think the thing to understand about these people is that they see the rest of us as prey they see mm. themselves as predators and predators will often know where the weak spots are and i think what they reveal is they reveal our own weaknesses so they're, they're, they're always attacking the people they can get away with so prostitutes, yeah. street prostitutes, you know, these guys aren't, Hannibal Lecter is like, oh yeah, I'm going to abduct, you know, the daughter of a senator. No, they're going for the people that basically we as a society have said, we don't care about. These like Jack the Ripper. Like Jack, Jack the, the Ripper, Ripper exactly. attacking the, and killing prostitutes, yeah. Exactly. There was one um, guy who got away with it because he just killed poor black women. And he just got away with it for decades. I can't remember the case. I think it was in California somewhere. Because he he knew these people were expendable, but you know society wasn't going to mount a big campaign, you know, and I think that's yeah I I do think but again I do think there is a dramatic in in the terms of turning into Jeff, Jeffrey Jarmer seems to be an utterly monotone boring ferocious monster I can't imagine anything interesting coming out of it I mean he seems on the you know yeah just a really unpleasant boring person. But you, but you can't watch that for six hours on Netflix. You know, you've got to find a way of how to make this person interesting. So I kind of get it why they do it, you know. Um, I, I think the big problem we have is, I would call it this tyranny of story, this constant need to turn real life into a three-act structure. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know. I don't know if Pablo Escobar was a particularly interesting person, a raconteur, you know. Did you want to mm. have dinner with Pablo Escobar? Oh, pass the wine, Pablo, and tell me another story about how you've planted a bomb and killed some children. I don't, I, you know, I don't think these are interesting people. Uh, and a lot of them aren't, you know, a lot of them, um, I mean, some you will come across. Uh, but yeah, you know, criminals are often very, very boring, especially this new generation. I've had to deal with some of them from the Gulf clan. And they're just, they're proudly ignorant. They're just mm. sort of dumb. And it's just, there's no, there's no, there's no flair there. It's just kind of thuggish, street illiteracy proudly ignorant proudly materialistic and no introspection no sort of questioning about anything just going to be dead by 25 and who cares only their mothers are going to care because you know what 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 are they doing you know they're not i don't know i mean you can you this the drug war will take you to very dark places this job you know you think about a lot of these things so perhaps maybe yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Toby, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it anyway. I hope everyone no, else No, I've loved it. Uh, th thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. And thank you for yeah, not um, asking too many questions about Pablo Escobar. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one thing I wanted to do in my book is just because I thought there's so many books out there. It's like, Pablo Escobar was burned in 1947. The one thing I was like, I'm not going to do. And I was like, I think it was at some point they were like, no, you have to mention Pablo Escobar but um yeah uh where can people find you if they'd like to follow your journey uh so i'm on twitter still uh although the thing seems to be collapsing by the day at toby news <laughs> um that's t-o-b-y-m-u-s-e 
Um, and I'm on Instagram. Um, yeah, I'm kind of moving away from social media. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like that's also come to me to be kind of just, I don't know, just sort of seeing through it and just thinking, what am I getting out of this? You know, uh, but yeah, uh, follow me on there. I'm actually on the process of trying to sell my next book, uh, which is going to be about pirates. So uh, really? you know, I hope you'll have me back on and I can tell you all about pirates. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to read that. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for watching. Make sure that you follow the show on Spotify and iTunes. If you're on Spotify, give me five stars. Why not? I sound like an Uber driver. Five stars for five stars. And yeah, thank you, Toby, for coming on. I'll see you guys all next time. Bye.